Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. To understand memory and how scientists have generally thought it works, imagine that memories move through our brain as though they were traveling by train. The first stop is short-term memory. Afterward, they could move on to the next and final stop, long-term memory. But one researcher found that our brains seem to really have two parallel sets of tracks, one going to each location, and the trains reach those destinations at the same time by recording experiences to short-term and long-term memory simultaneously. It's an unorthodox view, and the scientist who came up with it didn't take the normal route to get there. If you walk into MIT's Pickauer Institute for Learning and Memory, you can't miss Susumu Tonogawa. There he is, in a three-foot-tall framed photo in the middle of the grand lobby. Oh, you want the real Susumu Tonogawa? He's likely upstairs on the fifth floor, somewhere amid the maze of labs and offices, possibly upending basic assumptions in brain science. Last year, he reported that memory storage and retrieval happen on two different brain circuits, not on the same one as was long thought. Remember our subway stop and train tracks? Tonagawa and his team also showed that memories of an event form at the same time in the brain's short-term and long-term storage areas, rather than moving to long-term storage later on. Most recently, his lab demonstrated what could someday be a way to bring current, irretrievable memories back into conscious awareness. Tonagawa didn't start out in the science world looking at the brain. He began in the 1980s studying the immune system. Tonagawa earned his Ph.D. at the University of California, San Diego, but eventually his U.S. work permit ran out. So we moved to Switzerland to work at the Basel Institute for Immunology. While he was there, Tonagawa published a theory that immune cells reshuffle their DNA to create millions of different antibodies from a small number of genes. At first, the science world thought the idea was crazy. But then they realized it was brilliant. His discovery won him the Nobel Prize in 1987. That's why his giant portrait hangs in the MIT lab. Most Nobel laureates stay in their field, maybe working on far-out ideas they might not otherwise have a chance to research. Not Tonagawa. He says he wanted to try something new. So he switched gears, leaving immunology behind and going into neuroscience. He traded DNA in the immune system for mastering how memory works at a cellular level. Tonagawa is now a professor of biology and neuroscience at MIT. Let's back up a bit. When Tonagawa started out in neuroscience, it was a far less developed field. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, researchers knew relatively little about how the brain worked at a cellular and molecular level. Well-known biologists at the time called neuroscience the wave of the future. Tonagawa would be mapping unexplored territory. But while he didn't have a map, he did have some tools to get him there. Tonagawa's life studying immunology left him with investigative techniques that worked well in neuroscience, too. He had been using genetically modified mice to study immunology. 
He'd knock out particular genes and observe the physical effects. So he used a similar approach to uncover the biological basis of learning and memory. In an early MIT study, he bred mice that did not produce a particular enzyme thought to be important in cementing long-term memories. The behavior of that mutant mice seemed mostly normal, but further testing showed they had deficiencies in spatial learning, confirming the enzyme's key role in that process. With that high-profile result, Tonagawa was off and running. About a decade ago, he was able to take his work to a new level by using a technique called optogenetics. It was originally developed by a Stanford University bioengineer. The technique involves modifying the genes of lab animals so that their cells express a light-sensitive protein called channel rhodopsin. The protein is derived from green algae, which use photosynthesis to make food from absorbed light. With the technique, researchers can activate the cells by shining light on them through optical fibers. Tonagawa and his colleagues use optogenetics to generate neural activity on command in specific regions of the brain. This method has allowed Tonagawa to show that existing theories about memory formation and storage were wrong, or at least incomplete. Last summer, Tonagawa and his colleagues turned neuroscience dogma on its head. They reported that the neural circuit in the brain's hippocampus that makes a particular memory is not the same circuit that later recalls the memory. Instead, retrieving a memory requires what the scientists call a detour circuit. It's in the hippocampus's subiculum, a neural structure located just off the main memory formation circuit. Here's how Tonagawa, his MIT colleague Dheeraj Roy, and their team did it. Imagine you're looking through a microscope at a slice of brain from a mouse. In particular, we're looking at the hippocampus. See up in the right-hand corner? There's a glowing green bunch of neurons. They're in the subiculum. This is the area we'll focus on. We've genetically engineered this mouse to produce channel rhodopsin only in the subiculum's neurons. We can activate or deactivate them with piped-in laser light. In this experiment, the mouse has been trained to be afraid when it's inside a certain cage. We put the mouse in that cage. Sorry, mouse. The poor guy's afraid. We use the laser light to turn his subiculum neurons off. Suddenly, no fear. The mouse cannot remember the fearful memory when the subiculum neurons are turned off. That means the subiculum is needed to recall that memory. Let's use our laser light to turn off the subiculum neurons while we teach the fearful association. Later on, the mouse is still scared because it's able to recall that memory easily. That means a separate part of the hippocampus must have encoded the memory. Tonagawa and Roy's team also turned the main hippocampal circuit on and off. They found that it's responsible for memory formation, but not for recall. So basically, the brain forms and recalls memories using different circuits. Roy says that allows the brain to expedite the process. If the same hippocampal circuit were used for both storage and retrieval, encoding a new memory would take hundreds of milliseconds. But if one circuit adds new information, while the detour circuit simultaneously calls up similar memories, it's possible to apply past knowledge to your current situation much more quickly. 
So now, Roy says, you can update on the order of tens of milliseconds. If you think of it in terms of survival, a few hundred milliseconds could mean the difference between getting away from a predator or becoming its dinner. The parallel circuits may also help us quickly integrate present information with older memories. Let's say you're talking to your best friend, Shannon. Memories of that new conversation can be added seamlessly to your existing memories of Shannon. Tonagawa, Roy, and their colleague, Takashi Kitamura, have also shown that memory formation itself is unexpectedly complex. Their work concerned the brain changes involved in the transformation of short-term memories to long-term memories. For decades in neuroscience, the most widely accepted model said short-term memories form rapidly in the hippocampus and are later transferred to the prefrontal cortex near the brain's surface for long-term storage. But Tonegawa's team found new memories form at both locations at the same time. The road to that discovery started back in 2012, when Tonegawa's lab came up with a way to highlight brain cells known as engram cells. Those cells hold a unique memory. Tonegawa knew that when mice take in new surroundings, certain genes activate in their brains. His team linked the expression of these experiential learning genes in the mice to a channel rhodopsin gene. That made precise cells glow when they activated during a learning event. Tonegawa says you can show those cells are really holding the memory because if you reactivate only those neurons with laser light, the animal behaves like it's recalling that memory. In their study in the journal Science, the team used the technique to create mice whose learning cells would respond to light. They used a mild electric shock to train mice to be afraid of a certain cage by forming a fearful memory. A day later, they returned each mouse to the cage and illuminated its brain to activate the brain cells storing the memory. As expected, hippocampal cells involved in short-term memory responded to the laser light. But surprisingly, a handful of cells in the prefrontal cortex responded as well. Cortical cells had formed memories of the shock almost right away, well ahead of the anticipated schedule. Still, the researchers noticed that even though the cortical cells could be activated early with laser light, they didn't fire spontaneously when the mice returned to the cage where the shock happened. The researchers called these cortical cells silent engrams because they contained the memory but did not respond to a natural recall cue. Over the next couple of weeks, however, these cells seemingly matured and became integral for recalling the memory. Tonagawa says at first, the hippocampal engram is active. Then that activity decreases. Meanwhile, the prefrontal cortex engram is silent at the beginning and slowly becomes active. Basically, they switch. This detailed understanding of how memories are laid down and stored could lead to the development of drugs that help with the formation of new memories. But some in the neuroscience community say not so fast. They think we need to be cautious in interpreting the significance of findings like these. Last year, Tonogawa's MIT colleagues, Andre Rudenko and Lee Hoi Sai, emphasized that engram science is still so new that we don't know exactly how engram cells might work together. They point out we also don't know which cells contain which parts of memories. They say we still don't have satisfactory answers to many important questions. 
Tonagawa says brains contain silent engrams that could potentially be externally activated. Some scientists are excited by that idea. Others call it overblown. Neuroscientist Sheena Jocelyn of Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children says it forces the scientific community to either update its thinking or try experiments to challenge Tonagawa's assertion. Despite the uncertainty that surrounds it, the silent engram concept offers us the fascinating prospect of gaining access to hidden memories. That's a prospect that Roy continues to explore. Last October, he published a paper with Tonegawa that generated a flurry of excitement. One of the paper's blockbuster findings was that, at least in mice, it was possible to awaken silent engrams without using a laser light or optical fibers. Roy says the team asked themselves whether they could make hidden memories permanently active with a non-invasive treatment. A cellular protein called PAC-1 stimulates the growth of dendritic spines. These are protrusions that allow communication between neurons. Roy had a hunch that this protein might help bring silent engrams back into direct awareness when the protein is transported into brain cells. Roy points out it's simpler to turn on the memories this way than with optogenetics using the laser light. To test this possibility, the researchers first gave mild shocks to mice in a cage while also suppressing their ability to make the proteins that normally cement long-term memories. When these mice returned to the same cage later on, they showed no fear. That indicated that they didn't naturally recall the shock in response to a cue. Laser light could still switch on the mice's fearful response. That meant the memory was still there in silent engram form. The team then injected the mice with the PAC-1 gene to make them overproduce the protein that cements long-term memories. The mice entered the dreaded cage. They froze up spontaneously in fear. They were recalling the memory of the cage all on their own. The silent engram was coming to life. Roy says when PAC-1 is administered, you just wait four days and the mice recall the memory with natural cues. Roy hopes that someday, a therapeutic injection of PAC-1 molecules in human brain cells could awaken people's silent memories as well. He says he doesn't think we're that far away from that becoming a reality anymore. But Roy admits it's very sci-fi, even for him. Think about what reactivating silent engrams could do for people with memory issues. Alzheimer's sufferers, soldiers who've survived bombings, And even athletes who've suffered concussions could regain memories that have become inaccessible. Of course, the treatment would have to be fairly early before too many injured brain cells die. But what about the rest of us who just want to mine our memories to excavate what's buried deep within? Tonagawa says it could possibly be done, but he's cautious. Tonagawa says even though his lab has successfully reactivated mice's silent engrams after a few days, that's no guarantee that silent engrams last very long. And once the cells that encode particular memories die off from old age or dementia, it might be game over, no matter what kind of proteins you inject. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Elizabeth Svoboda's full article, Light-Triggered Genes Reveal the Hidden Workings of Memory, on our website, quantamagazine.org.